so good to worship Jesus together. Thanks for singing out. You can take your seats and let's welcome to the stage Dr. Wayne Vanderweer. What a delight. And uh, as you could tell in the earlier presentation, I was feeling a bit of pressure for time because we need to, you know, kind of move this thing along a little bit and we had other things to do. Now I'm not feeling pressure because Todd told me that normally the sermon in this place is about two hours. Yep. Is that what you said? So you, you, oh, that's not what you, that's not what you said. I guess I, I heard what I wanted to hear in that case. Uh, so very grateful to God to be among you uh, for this weekend and to be able to have the privilege of sharing the marriage conference and now uh, here in the church. We're going to be uh, talking this morning about targeting the source of your problems. This will not be unknown stuff uh, to the folks that were at the marriage conference. And we're going to be opening our Bibles to James chapter 4. So if you do that, I should appreciate that. And, um, and let me just ask this question to begin. How many of you have at home some kind of a, a how-to book, an instructional manual about something how many have something like that? A how-to book? Let me see your hands all over the place. Lots of people have how-to books, of course. We need these. For example, here's one that I need. It's called how to, how to Fix Everything for Dummies. I need this because I don't do well with home repair stuff. I don't enjoy that at all. And I'm Dutch. <laughs> Anybody else here Dutch? Absolutely. Did you get it? Vanderweer? Did you get that name? Vander? Oh, and boy, am I Dutch. Raised as a child in Holland, Michigan. Did you ever hear of that place? They have, they have tulips and stuff around there. And, uh, and, and I was told on good authority that uh, Hollanders kind of forget between uses which end of the hammer to hold. I'm not sure that's true, but for me, that's, that's pretty much true. Uh, here's one that I found fascinating. It's a book called how to read a book. Does anybody have this book? Uh, you do. It, 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 you don't have the book. No. You're just lying to the preacher on Sunday morning. All right. Whose child is this? We need, a, we need a teenager badge number up there on the... I, I did this one time in some place, and a guy called out, that's a great book. I said, seriously? He said, yeah, everybody should get the book called How to Read a Book. I, yeah? I, you know the book? It's a good book. I don't know. It confuses me. Here's, here's one for all the students, how to talk about books you haven't read. Every student needs that book, Right? And here's one just for the ladies. This one's called How to Rule the World from Your Couch. Uh, the only problem with this one that I see is, as far as I know, this woman is not yet actually, you know, ruling the world. So I don't know how that worked out for her. Maybe she needs to reread her own book. Could be. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen, the mother of all how-to books. This is how to do just about everything. This is 1001 instructional tidbits about every imaginable thing. Can, can you, I just ripped a few off the back cover here, change your oil, write a love letter, 
I, I had this thought, if you really need an instructional book on how to write a love letter, maybe you're not actually in love. Did you ever think about that? How to wash your cat? I, I already know how to wash a cat. You get a big bucket of water, you hold the cat under until the bubbles stop rising. I, I, I just, I, I just, I just lost all the cat lovers. I'm, I'm so sorry for you. Uh, I hate cats. And it wasn't me. It wasn't me that said this. It was my precious middle child, our middle daughter, Katie Webster, <laughs> trained in culinary arts, who told me one day, so many cats, so few recipes. That's the, <laughs> that's the, that's the real problem here. Now, thank you, Katie. <laughs> Now, why are we talking about how-to books? We're talking about how-to books because basically that's what the book of James is. Most of you know if you started at the beginning in James chapter 1, verse 1, you would find that James is the half-brother too, and yet he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will know on further investigation that James was writing to people who were formerly Jews who have now come to faith in Jesus Christ and people who were dispersed into various locations, little assemblies of believers here and there. This is one of those letters that we call an encyclical. It went from group to group to group. And therefore, what James gave was practical advice on a wide variety of subjects in a very brief format, just five chapters. And James helps us a lot to the extent that we sometimes call the book of James in the New Testament sort of the how-to handbook of the New Testament. Now, Reading James is going to help you a bunch. Reading your Bible is going to help you a bunch. But in particular, I'm interested in having you read the book of James, five little chapters. You can do it in a relatively short period of time, all in one setting. And I think you should do it this afternoon. What do you think? Well, let me try that again. I think you should read the book of James this afternoon. What do you think? That's, that's, that's just poor and weak. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment before God and everybody. Are you ready? If you're going to make a commitment to read the book of James today, before you go to bed, let's have your hand right here. You're going to, all right, this is going to bless you. This is going to help you personally. This is going to help your church because you're going to get all kinds of really helpful information on a variety of topics uh, that will be an assistance to you. Now, before we dive into the text... I want you to complete a sentence for me, but I want you to complete the sentence not in the way that you know is correct. By the way, uh, all the folks that were at the marriage conference this weekend, all of you couples, I know some are probably helping the kids. Would, if you were there, would you just stand up for a second? Would you just everybody stand up if you were at the marriage conference? Look at this big crowd of folks. Thank you very much. What a great audience. Thank you. And any one of these people could probably preach this message because they've heard something like this before. So to all of you especially, I say, don't give the right answer, which you now know. Instead, and, and by the way, if you just, if the rest of you blurt out an answer, you may embarrass yourself. So I'm trying to save you some embarrassment here. 
So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the sentence. I want you to fill in the blank in a way that other people, you know, the other people, like non-harvest people, you know what I'm talking about? Other people might fill in the blank, all right? So here, here, here's the sentence. I'm having a problem right now, and in order for the problem to get better, blank needs to change. I'm having a problem right now, and in order for the problem to get better, blank needs to change. Now, how might somebody else, not you, how might somebody else fill in the blank? Somebody give me, a, give me an option. My job needs to change. Okay, really good. Somebody else. My, thank you. That was far too enthusiastic by two ladies. <laughs> My husband needs to change. By the way, uh, what do the husbands say? Yeah, yeah, my wife needs to change for sure. What do, the, uh, what do the parents say? The kid, what do the kids say? <laughs> the parents need to change. What does the, uh, what does the employer say? My employees, right? And what do the employees say? What does a, what does a pastor say? <laughs> the, the church members. And what are the church... Ne- never mind. No, I don't want to... I don't, I, I don't want to go. You get the point. The answer is almost always something or someone outside of yourself. My neighbor needs to change. My car needs to change. My cat needs to die. Something. (laughs) Something or someone outside of yourself. And here's an even easier question uh, to fill in. I'm having a problem right now, and I want the person or circumstances to change when? Right now, of course. Actually, a better answer would be, yesterday or last year or five years ago because I've been struggling with this thing for a really long time. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that that kind of thinking is based on a lie. And the lie is that my life will improve only when the people and circumstances around me change. And you will hear sometimes even Christians, even well-meaning Christians in good teaching churches pray that God will change the circumstances around them for their benefit. God, change my wife. God, move my neighbor. God, give me a different job. God, change my boss. God, do something. Because the idea there is that the real problem is someone or something outside of me. And if God would simply change that thing, that circumstance, then my life would be better. That lie also has all kinds of other problems with it. That kind of thinking also ignores the sovereignty of God and breeds constant frustration for people. It denies the process of progressive sanctification. It robs that person of the hope of change. And it prepares that person for failure in all kinds of other circumstances of life for the rest of their life. That's unbiblical thinking. And James gives to us a more biblical way to think about the things that beset us. So let's dive into the text. Here we are, James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now that's, that's the central question. I've called the message targeting the source of your problems. 
That's kind of what James is asking in this question. What is the source of your problems? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Listen carefully. That your passions are at war within you. James gives us right at the jump a really good idea about where the problem really exists. What is the source of problems? It's not him, it's not her, it's not them, it's not that. It's not even the cat. What's the source of the problems? It's here. It's my heart. It's my passions. It's my desires. It's the thing I'm chasing. It's my worship focus. It's what I believe will satisfy. It's the thing I must do before I die or the great and grand goal of my life. It's your passions. It's the thing that's driving you. It's your central motivation. What's the source of your struggles? Is it not this, the passions that are at war within you? Now follow along. I'm going to keep reading here. Beginning at verse 2. You, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Ladies and gentlemen, who is the focus of these verses? You. Like, like you. <sighs> and you, and you, and you, and you. All of us use in the room. That's what James is describing here. And he's saying what we need to do if we're going to correctly focus our problems, if we're going to target our problems, we're going to have to first of all recognize the source of our problems, which is not others. Circumstances. It is not other people. It is my sinful, wicked heart that God needs to be able to transform. Now let me see if I can say this in words uh, slightly different than what James has said here, but, but this is kind of what he's getting at. Uh, first of all, you do what you do because you think what you think. You just kind of let that sink in for a moment. You do what you do because you think what you think. That is to say, you never did anything, you never said anything without first thinking that thing. I told the folks uh, at the marriage conference, I had a couple one time, I was counseling them, I said something to the guy, what were you thinking when you responded to your wife and his response, thinking, I wasn't thinking, I didn't have time to think. She said something and I just started yelling at her, there was no time to think. And then I pointed him to Matthew 15, 18 that says, every word that comes out of your mouth comes from someplace. Where, does the, where do those words come from, ladies and gentlemen? They come from your heart. You don't speak without thinking. It's just not possible. You do what you do because you think what you think, which would kind of lead us at this point to ask the question, what are you thinking about? And I don't mean at this very moment, I hope you're thinking about the sermon, I hope you're thinking about the worship, I hope you're thinking about glorifying God in church on Sunday morning. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm asking, what are you thinking about in other moments, in other times? What kind of internet sites do you visit? What kind of channels do you watch? What kind of movies do you attend? What kind of books do you read? What kind of magazines do you consume? What are you thinking about? What consumes you? What's your default position if you have a moment to think about something? By the way, uh, who, here's a good question. Who gets to choose what you think about? You do. You're the one that gets to choose what you, that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now there are, other, there are moments when commercials first come on or you see billboards along the road, there are moments where other people demand that you think at least momentarily about what they want you to think about, but then you can choose to either continue to think about that thing or not think about that thing. You get to choose what you think about. You do what you do because you think what you think. Now let me ask you a question, and uh, I think I'm on solid ground here. I, I sure hope I am. Have you ever heard in this church from anybody from this pulpit Have you ever heard one of your pastors, one of your elders, say something like this? Read your Bible. Did you ever hear that around here? Say yes or no. Oh, wow, that was a little bit risky there for a moment. I knew the answer to that, of course. In fact, here's what these guys are saying around here, the leaders that love you. Here's what they're saying. Read your Bible. 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 Why? Because they already know this truth. You do what you do because you think what you think. And what they would like you thinking about, what they would like you filled with, what they would like you consumed by are the truths of the Word of God. There was a preacher from a different generation that said it slightly differently than this. But basically what he said was, the Christian should be so full of the Word of God that when somebody pokes them, they bleed Bible on them. That's right. The natural outflow should be what the Scripture says. Most of us know this already. What what do I have here, ladies and gentlemen? It's, It's a water bottle, right. So somebody comes along, I hate to do this, somebody will have to wipe this up later. So, I, so somebody comes along and they bump me. Oh. What came out of the bottle, ladies and gentlemen? Why did water come out of the bottle? Because that's what's in the bottle. If there was iced tea in the bottle, iced tea would have come out. If there was lemonade in the bottle, lemonade would have come Whatever's in the bottle is what comes out of the bottle. You do what you do because you think what you think. There's this funny kind of phrase that I've heard hundreds of times. My wife makes me so angry. That's a lie. Your wife does not have the moral authority to make you angry. Did you know that? If you get angry, it's because anger was already in there. What was in there is what comes out of there. Is it not this? Your passions, your desires, what you want, your idols, 
your worship focus? Is it not this as the source of the various troubles? So let's first of all identify the source. That is your wicked heart. You do what you do because you think what you think. But you think what you think because you want what you want. Which leads me to ask for the very first time today, and I'll ask it again later, what do you want? And by that I do not mean, what do you want at this moment? I'm asking, what do you really, long-term, end of life, tomorrow, next year, five years from now, ten years from now, what do you really want? What are you really pursuing? What's really the be-all, end-all for you? What's really the final thing that you must have? What is the one thing that you think will bring you satisfaction outside of Christ? What are you chasing? You think what you think because you want what you want. What do you want? What do you think will satisfy you? Now, let's just, do you have a good imagination? Say yes or no. Should we, just, should we just imagine for a moment? Let's go backwards up this thing, and let's just imagine for a moment that the goal of my life, the one thing I want to accomplish before I die, the thing I need to have above all else is this. I want to be known someday as the world's greatest cat expert. That, you have to have a serious imagination to be able to to come up with that, and oh, what a vacuous, empty, horrible life it would be if if that was really the goal of, I can't think of anything more worth. Anyway, um, uh, I want to be the world's greatest cat expert. That's what I want. If that's what I want, what am I going to think about, ladies and gentlemen? (laughs) What a sad life. (laughs) I'm going to spend my life thinking about all things cat. When I wake up in the morning, my very first thought is going to be about, yeah. And then all day long, as I live my life, I'm going to be thinking about, yeah. And then uh, last thing at night before I go to bed, I'm going to be thinking about, and when I dream, I'm going to dream about, this is a, (laughs) dogs chasing cats. (laughs) Sure. Rooting for the dogs, by the way. You you do what you do because you think what you think, but you think what you think because you want what you want. I want to be a cat expert, therefore I think about cat stuff. It consumes me. It's the one thing that I think about all the time, every minute of the day. That's what I'm chasing. But... I think about what I think about, therefore I do things, and what will I do? I will do cat stuff. I don't even know what that means. I I I will breed cats. I will raise cats. I will show cats. I will spend my money to go to the International Cat Symposium or something. I will subscribe to Cat Monthly or Cat Illustrated or some... I have no idea what that world is like, 
but the fact is I will do what I do because I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about and I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about because I want what I want. It all works together. What do you want? What do you want? Because what it is that you want, the thing that's driving you, the passion of your heart, your great desire, that thing is what you're going to spend time thinking about and doing things concerning. What do you want? So in other words, you, have, you struggle or you have problems when you pursue the illegitimate desires of your heart. You have problems. I put problems in quotations there because did you know that for God there's no such thing as problems? Did you know that? We call them problems when we have difficult circumstances. That's the top box in the diagram, marriage conference people. When we have circumstances that seem to us to be unpleasant, we call those problems. There's no such thing as a problem with God. What God has is circumstances that he ordains. But we struggle or we have what we call problems when we are pursuing the illegitimate desire of our heart. That's very important. And what I did is I just gathered a few. There are literally hundreds of verses like this that talk about the heart, the propriety of the heart, that everything comes out of the heart. And yesterday in our conference, we talked about Proverbs 4.23. Pay vigilant attention to your heart, because out of it come all of the issues of life. The Lord, man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. Adultery is in the heart. Long before adultery takes place with the body, adultery takes place in the heart. And it is just as surely spiritual adultery if you join yourself to a God who is not the true and living God as it is physical adultery if you join yourself to someone who is not your spouse. Number two, to biblically target the source of your problems, you're going to need to learn the results of your sinful desires. Notice this. I'm over here in chapter 4 and verse Three, are you with me? You ask and you do not receive because, listen to this, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There it is again. The desire of your heart, the thing you really want. So you're asking, and one of the results of worshiping at the wrong altar, of having the wrong desires is unanswered prayer. So, so, so the guy at work comes to you, and, and he says, hey, buddy, would you, uh, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. You pray, right? Yeah. Would you pray for me? What's going on? Well, the boss came to me, and the boss said, I'm in line for a big promotion. And, uh, and you know what that would mean, don't you? That would mean I would have a bigger office, more people to manage, and I'd make a lot more money. You might ask him, as a fellow believer, why do you want more money? Now, at that point, he's going to look at you like you're crazy, right? Because, you know, everybody wants more money because everybody knows, and as you have been taught in this church many times, the goal of life is to get more money. 
Isn't that what you... Maybe not. Of course not. And so you're just asking, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of money if that's what God ordains for you, perfectly fine. But why? I'm asking, why do you want more money? And here's what he says. My neighbor next door just got him a big, shiny, new car. And I want to buy a bigger car than his car. (laughs) Yeah, that'll show him. (laughs) You going to pray for him or not? Think about that. First, you counsel him biblically, right? (laughs) Because obviously his, his desires are all messed up. Look what it says. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. It's all about his passions, his desires, his reputation. Where is the glory of God in that? It's nowhere to be found. The bigger, better car is all about me, my reputation, what people think about me, consuming it on my passions. To be clear, nothing wrong with having a big new car. It all depends on the passions, on the desires, on answering the question, why? Why that car? Why that car now? What's driving you? What are your passions? And not only that, but there's a second thing, and that is, keep reading, verse 4. You adulterous people, exclamation point. Now, why would James use that strange phrase? You adulterous people, because James knew who he was writing to. He's writing to people who used to be Jews, and those folks who used to be Jews knew very well the Old Testament. They understood what God had said all the way back in Exodus at the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments, that if you go after other gods, if you chase other things as your highest priority, that's what God called spiritual adultery. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, therefore wishes to be a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. This, this whole thing is not all that difficult. It's binary. You can be a friend of God or a friend of the world. You can worship at God's altar, seek to please him, have as your life mission glorifying him, or you can be a friend of the world and have as your life mission pleasing yourself, doing what you want to do. It's not that tough. It's those two options. And if we had time, and we're not going to take time today to go over to Jeremiah, over to Ezekiel 14, and look at that passage, you would find that what happens there is that God speaks through the prophet, and he says, I'm not going to listen to these people at all because of the idols in their hearts. Now think about that. An idol in the heart is different than an actual physical idol. We know that there were people that had literal physical idols at that time. Much more devious, much more difficult to identify are the idols in your heart, the little idols that you came in with today that are neatly packed away and that you are able to easily hide from everybody in the room. You've got them. They're there. I've got them. They're there. And God says, I'm not going to answer these people on the basis of the multitude of their idols. It's kind of interesting. Idol in the heart becomes a metaphor for various kinds of ways to describe this. 
Uh, Elise Fitzpatrick talked about the thing that you'll sin to, to get or sin if you don't get it. It is the God that is above or positioned, prioritized above every other thing. Long before Rachel stole her father's literal idols and hid them in the saddle, Rachel had idols. Give me children or I die. Children were clearly for Rachel an idol. Those kinds, of, and by the way, any person, plan, or, or, or possession, person, plan, or possession, think about this. There sits the sweet and wonderful Susie, my dear wife of 45 and a half years. May I, may I make a confession between, before God and all of you? I love my wife. I really love my wife. Isn't that good news? Now let me ask you a question. Could my wife become an idol? Say yes or no. Sure. Sure. If she is prioritized above, if she becomes more important to me than my worship, my intimacy, my, my relationship with my Savior. Good things can become bad things. Good things can become idols. And so even John Calvin in the Institutes, when reflecting on this passage in Ezekiel, said that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. You have one right now. You may have more than one churning away in your heart. And let me tell you what's going to happen. When the service ends in a few minutes and you stand up and we sing the final song or whatever we do, and you get ready to leave this place, you're going to engage in conversations. You're going to be, and think about now the idols that will be at work in your heart. What do you want? In those moments? What's really important to you in those moments? What's really driving you in those moments? What's the passion of your life? And then eventually you're going to get in your car and you're going to drive out the driveway and you're probably going to head over to 31 and you're going to go north or south. And when you do, and it's snowing outside, did you know that? God bless you for being here. And when you do, you're going to fight another idol. And, and the idol is going to be, I just want to get home safely. I don't want to skid. I don't want to hit anybody. I don't want to end up in a snowbank. Oh, my. And your focus, your passion, your goal at that moment. It's not bad to be a safe driver. But that could easily take over and become for you the idol of your heart, physical safety. And then finally, uh, hostility. What are the results of worshiping at the wrong altar? Hostility toward God. That's what exactly what he says. He says here, verse 5, or do you suppose that it's to no purpose the scriptures have? He, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell with us. He wants your heart. So, this is the, uh, the here's the solution. Number three, the solution is solve life's problems at their source or at their root, which is the heart. Now, we're just going to flash through the rest of these verses, and I want you to see something very interesting here. James says, and you know this scripture very well, beginning at verse 6, he gives more grace. Grace is the desire and the ability and the power to do the will of God. God gives grace to you, and therefore, he says, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And here come the verbs 
that give to us the solution. Are you ready? Look at all those. What an interesting list. So let's have a little conversation with James for a moment. Hey, James, what's the real, uh, what's the real source of my problems? <laughs> it's you. It's your heart. It's your passions. It's your, ah, James, really? It's not my wife? Nope. It's not my boss? Nope. It's not the cat? Nope. It's you. It's your heart. It's your desires. It's your, oh, James. Well, hey, James, so if I'm worshiping at the wrong altar, if I'm wanting the wrong thing, what are the practical implications of that? What's going to happen as a result? Three things. We just listed them. Okay, James, I got it. My heart's the problem. I get all kinds of horrible results if I worship at the wrong altar. Okay, James, what's the solution? Here's what James does not say. James does not say, go to church more often. Now, I was a pastor 32 years. I think Christians should be in church. You obviously agree. (laughs) It's Sunday morning. Here you are. It's a good thing to be in church. If you're a believer, good for you. But let me ask you a question. Is it possible for a Christian to walk into this place sit where you're sitting week after week after week, and walk out unchanged. Say yes or no. It is possible. Because the mere behavior of walking into this building and putting yourself into one of these seats and singing through the worship and listening through the sermon, the mere behavior of that doesn't change you. God changes you when you allow God access to your heart. God changes you when your passions change. Here's what James doesn't say. Well, the way to, the way to fix this is give more money. I was a pastor. I think people should tithe. I think Christians should give offerings. I think people should be generous with the work of the Lord. That's absolutely true, biblically. But is it possible for a Christian to walk into a place like this and give generously to a place like this and not have their heart change? Say yes or no. Because giving could be, while it should be an act of worship, it could be merely a behavioral response to the baskets being passed. James didn't say, change your behavior. Pray more. Witness more, go to church more, do more Christian things. He didn't say that. Here's what James said. The problem is your heart. The consequences are dire. What's the answer? Look what he said. And, and, and let's answer this question. Where do all of these things take place? Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Uh, cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Um, um, uh, do the things that are there. All that stuff. Where does that take place? It takes place in your heart. It's not behaviors that need to change. It's your heart that needs to change. And James points us directly at the source of our problem as the source of our solution. Your heart needs to passionately burn after Christ's heart. So here are the three things in today's message. Recognize the source 
understand the problems that come, and then shift it, solve the problem where it really exists. Here's the bottom line question for all of us. I asked it before. I'll ask it a little more clearly now. Here's the question. What do you want? What do you really, really want? What are you really chasing? What's the real passion? What do you think, you, or we could say it this way, what is your com- consuming or controlling desire or motive, or we could even ask it this way, what is actually the idol in your heart, the thing we cannot see? Now, there is a virtually limitless number of idols in the heart. Let me just give you a few that may touch a chord with some of you. First, power. Some people, even some Christians, chase power, authority. I want to be the boss. I want to be the guy in charge. I want to be the guy in the corner office. I want to be the guy telling people what to do. Yeah, give me power over people. Give me authority so I can rule other people's lives. Yeah. For other people, it's pleasure. Leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. This is a special trap for old people. I speak as an old person. Some people think that when you get to be 60 or 65 or some magical age, you have earned the right to be old and crotchety. <laughs> Leave me alone now. I've earned the right to... Yeah. There's nothing like that in the Bible. I hope you understand that. We're not ever to chase our own pleasure as an end result. For some people, it's fame. I love this one. Some, some of you know about this um, American Idol kind of a thing that's been around for years. It, it's hilarious to me. This is so funny. Here's what happens. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people try out for American Idol, right? they got stadia full of people who want to be the American Idol. And a few people get a tryout, and they have the, the things, and then there's 20, and then there's 10, and then there's 5, and then there's finally somebody is the American Idol, woo And they get a recording contract, and they get a big sum of money, and the next thing you know, because they are instantly famous, the next thing you know, the paparazzi is following them around, and what do they say? No, 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 no pictures. I want my privacy. <laughs> really? If you really wanted privacy, don't try out for American Idol. And certainly don't be good. People chase what they think they want, and then sometimes when they get it, they realize it also doesn't satisfy. And for some people, of course, you know it's money. If I just had some more money, I'd be happy if I had money. Because look, look around. As you know, all the happiest people in the world are all the wealthiest people in the world, right? No turmoil in their lives, no problems with divorce, no problem, right? And some of you know the story of J.D. Rockefeller back in the 20s, 1920s, when he was the richest man in the world. And somebody asked Rockefeller, how much more do you need? What did he say? A little bit more. A little bit more, because, because money itself, the accumulation of wealth, never satisfies. 
there's always the strain of it. There's always the trouble of it. There's always the management of it. People are chasing these. One, one day I thought, you know, I, I bet I could make those into initials. And, and then when I thought, you know what? Even if you had all of those things, you know what you'd have? <laughs> I mean, at, at the end of the day, nothing. You, you've really got nothing of value in all of those things. Here's a better question. Not what do you want. The better question is, what does God want you to want? That's a good question. Let, let me just try your uh, Bible memory skills here for a minute. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What does God want you to want? His glory through your life. Think about 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then in, in Ephesians chapter 1, on two different lo- in two different places, why did God do what he did for us? Why did God predestine us to adoption as sons? Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's what God wants. What God wants from you is to turn your focus from those other things, those other passions, those other desires, those other idols, those useless things that you've been chasing, those desires that will never be effectively fulfilled, and turn your heart to having as your life mission the one thing that will count for all eternity, God's glory, through your life. I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And in an attitude of prayer, I want to challenge you to forget about, at this moment, the person on your right, the person on your left, the person you came with, the person you're going to go home with. For just a moment, I want to challenge you to think about What would it be like if you and I were standing, having a personal conversation, I'm standing right in front of you, looking eyeball to eyeball, and I ask you this question. What do you want? What do you really want? What's the passion of your heart? What's your controlling desire? What motivates you? What do you want? Because I believe that that's what God is asking you at this moment. He has your attention. He has your heart. And he's given you the opportunity to answer the question in these quiet moments. What do you want? Really, what do you want? This might be the time when you identify idols that need to be destroyed, passions that demonstrate a disoriented worship focus. This might be the time for repentance and renewal before the Lord.
And dear Father, here's my prayer. For all of us in the room, that you would draw our hearts to being passionate about what you love, what you desire. That we would, by your grace, crush the worthless idols that bewitch us. The plans that destroy us. I ask, dear Father, that for every man and woman, young and old, that you would help us to focus our lives on bringing you glory. Do this, I pray, for the sake of your glory, through these people, through this church. I ask it in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus.